morning, saints. In case you are wondering, I am R-D, spelled just like it sounds, R-D. Anyhow, great to see all your name tags on this potluck Sunday. I look forward to getting down to business and eating in a bit. Bibles open to Acts chapter 18. Let's bow our hearts in prayer. Come, Holy Ghost, our souls inspire, and lighten with celestial fire. We ask and pray now, Father, that you would send the Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth, to expose to us the sin in our hearts, and to grant us the faith to trust in Jesus, to give us the assurance of our salvation, to grant us the gifts of the Spirit for the purpose of ministry, to cause us to persevere to the end and to glorify us in heaven. Bring us to glorification in the end. Lord, we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, yesterday we had training in truth for maturity, which is our men's group that meets every month. And, you know, apart from eating bacon and eggs and sausages and hash browns and beans, it sounds pretty good, right? We are also fed each month in the Word of God, and and just yesterday, by the providence of God, by God's hand, it was not coordinated by us, but the topic that Brock tackled yesterday was the topic of the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, Steve Wishart tells me, and I trust him because he's a lawyer, (laughs) he's my legal counsel, Steve Wishart tells me that in surveys done, The person of the Holy Spirit is the least understood of the three persons of the Trinity. Christians understand the concept of the Father, the role of the Father. They understand the concept of the Son, the role of the Son. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, people err in at least one of two extremes. They either, you know, become kooky or they deny the work and power of the Spirit altogether. They just don't understand. And so today we're going to look closely at uh, the, first, the last half of Acts chapter 18, the first half of Acts chapter 19, and we are going to do so looking at Apollos and these 12 Ephesian men in order to gain understanding of the Holy Spirit. Look, let me say right at the onset, um, we're going to have to go deep theologically because that's just what we have to do if we're going to get anywhere on this passage. But it's not for the purpose of knowledge exclusively. The Bible teaches us that knowledge in and of itself puffs up. Is there anything more repugnant than a puffed up person? Instead, we're going to look at these passages and dig into them for the sake of devotion. That we would love the Lord Jesus Christ more dearly. We're going to look at this passage for the sake of power. For the Christian life, you know, Christians ought to be noticeable for their clear conscience. Men and women who have had their sins forgiven and know that it's true. Christians ought to be notable for an abiding peace when the entire world around us is circling the bowl. We have an anchor of our faith that is solid and sure. We ought to be notable for our hope and our joy. And this world needs a healthy dose of that these days, doesn't it? It strikes me that there are far too many Christians who are 
spending their entire Christian life, you know, they get saved, and then they spend their entire Christian life just sitting on their hands, waiting, either for their death or for the Lord's return. There are other Christians, and perhaps it's even more sad and tragic, they spend their entire Christian life, they get saved, and then they spend their entire Christian life feeling like they're hanging on by their fingernails until they die or until Jesus returns. When in fact, if you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. If you are a Christian man or woman, God has baptized you in and given you his Holy Spirit. That's the truth. So if you think about this from a big picture of theology, okay, the big picture of salvation history and God's act in creation, um, the incarnation is God veiled in flesh. Jesus is God with us. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon believers is now God in us. Ever since that first Pentecost. I was reading on social media the other day and a question came up. It said, do you need the Holy Spirit to go to heaven? And the answer was, man, I need the Holy Spirit to go to Walmart. Right? And it's kind of true. Well, let's dive into our text, verses 18 to 21. So we're coming to the end, chapter 18, verses 18 to 21. We're coming to the end of Paul's second missionary journey. He has left Corinth. He set sail for Antioch in Syria. He's picked up two new traveling partners. Who are they? Priscilla and Aquila, that's right. They're most likely the benefactors on this leg of the trip, having made a significant amount of money through tent making. They're now using those resources for the purpose of gospel ministry. On his way from Corinth back, so I'll go this way. So on his way from Corinth in the, that little isthmus between mainland Greece and the Peloponnesus, that's Corinth, he's now making his way back to Syria, back to Antioch. He stops off somewhere. Did you notice where he stopped off? In Ephesus, that's right. And there we're told that he reasons in the synagogue. And then he promises that he will return back to Ephesus if God so wills. Verses 22 to 23. He now makes his way from Ephesus to Caesarea, which is the port city. He encourages the church. From there he goes to his sending church in Antioch and then back through Galatia. So now he's on his third missionary journey. He now makes his way from Antioch up in Syria. He makes his way up through Galatia and back to the churches that he started on his prior missionary trips. He's encouraging them. He's strengthening them. Verse 24. Here's where we get into it. We are introduced to a man by the name of Apollos in chapter 18, verse 24. And you'll notice that Luke tells us at least three interesting facts about this man. Okay, look at them closely. Verse 24. First, we are told that he was a learned man. In Greek, it literally means eloquent. 
We're told in verse 24 that he had a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. Now, this is just an interesting side note if you're a Bible nerd like me. Who wrote the letter to the Hebrews? Well, it's unknown, right? Bible scholars always say that the authorship is unknown. However, it was Martin Luther who first posited that the author to the letter of the Hebrews might be none other than Apollos. He was a learned man in the scriptures. He was eloquent. Gosh, when you read the letter to the Hebrews, even in English, it's just so beautiful and so poetic. It has deep and rich connections throughout the Old Testament, which would have been the scriptures that Apollos was well-versed in. Who knows who wrote it? But, you know, Martin Luther, I seldom disagree with him. That's the first thing we know about him. The second thing we know about Apollos is that Verse 25, he's been instructed in the way of the Lord. He speaks with great fervor. In Greek, it is literally, he's fervent in spirit. That's the literal Greek translation. And so in Apollos, we have a man who is deeply learned, but he's also passionate. He matches his erudition and his learning with enthusiasm. The third thing we know about him, look at verse 25. Apollos' teaching at this point was good and accurate, but somewhat truncated. In verse 25, it says, he knew only the baptism of John. Hey, we gotta, we got to nail something down here before we move forward. Apollos and the 12 men that we're about to meet in Ephesians, they were Old Testament believers. And they were among the last few to remain. So, so here's the point. Here in this part of the, of the account, Luke is telling us something special and something particular, not only about Apollos, but he's telling us something particular about this moment in the history of salvation as the good news of the gospel of Jesus is spreading throughout the world. There's something very particular about this, not only for Apollos personally, but in terms of how the gospel moved out. Apollos knew something of Jesus, and he taught about his death and resurrection. But, but, but Paul's telling us that, or sorry, Luke is telling us that, that this man, Apollos, only understood Jesus as far as the baptism of John. So, so let's get really particular about this, okay? Let's drill in on it. Apollos would have been a believer kind of in the same way that John the Baptist was. Only aware that the Messiah was coming. He would have been a believer that believed in the law and the prophets, but he'd have been an Old Testament type of believer. He would not yet have understood the fullness of the coming kingdom of God through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
We're told by Luke that Apollos is learned in the Scriptures. But then we're told that he's learned in the Scriptures right up to the point of John the Baptist. Right up to the point of the coming of Jesus. And we know that John the Baptist himself said, I will baptize you with water, but this one who's coming after me will baptize you in, what did he say? The Spirit and with fire. So if that's what John the Baptist is promising, and if that's what he represents, all of the Old Testament, all of the law, all of the prophets gathered up and accumulated, accrued right up to the point of John the Baptist, even John the Baptist said, there's one who's coming who's greater than I, and he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Well, Apollos only knows the story up to that point. Verses 25 to 26. So he is teaching boldly in the synagogue, verse 26. And his teaching is accurate, but it's not full. It's incomplete. So Priscilla and Aquila, verse 26, pull them aside in private, and they hold a little Bible study session. They bring them up to speed. With respect to this present moment, they tell Apollos, listen, this one whom John the Baptist foretold and prepared the way for, he has come. He has brought the baptism of spirit and of fire. He has brought the kingdom. Well, just as another aside, here Priscilla and Aquila give us a good model for correcting teachers and preachers. They pull them aside in private. You know, if from the scriptures you want to correct a preacher or a teacher, Start by pulling them aside in private and talking to them about it. Too often these days, people try to score points off of preachers on social media by just lobbing grenades at them in public. And that has little to no hope of bringing about the desired outcome. Here, Apollos is, is pulled aside by Priscilla and Aquila. They correct his teaching, and he receives the teaching not least of which because it's done in private. And so Apollos is brought up to speed. He receives this good news of the baptism of the Holy Spirit or of Jesus, and now he is complete in his life and in his teachings. Okay, let's pause. So you are maybe wondering... Is it possible that I am deficient like Apollos? You'd look at it and you'd say, RDI, I have believed. I have been baptized. But was that only merely the baptism of John? You're wondering, you think, do I now as a Christian man or woman still need a separate subsequent work of grace? Do I need something that's different in addition to this, something called baptism of the Spirit? Brace yourselves. In a word, no. No. 
More on this in a moment as we look at Paul with the 12 in Ephesus. Verses 27 to 28. Apollos now filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized with the Spirit, has the fullness of the teachings of the kingdom of God in Jesus, and he teaches with power and authority in the Spirit in Achaia, which is also known as Corinth. Okay, on to chapter 19. We're going to move through these, and then I'm going to work really hard to apply it, okay? It's just really important that we establish the theological foundation so that we can apply it well. Chapter 19 is perhaps one of the most misunderstood and misused accounts in Acts. As we start to look here in chapter 19, let me be really clear. There is no separate subsequent work of grace for Christian believers today. A careful reading of this passage in context and employing good tools for Bible reading will correct what has become a largely Western and thoroughly modern misreading and misapplication of this passage. This misreading and misapplication of this passage has led Christian men and women to feel deficient, to um, passionately seeking something that is already theirs. Let me say this more concretely and more directly. If you are a baptized believer in Jesus, you are by definition baptized in the Holy Spirit, period, full stop. You are not merely baptized into the baptism of John. Okay, how does this work in the text? Well, here in Acts chapter 18 and 19 in particular, what we have is a screenshot of a particular moment in salvation history. A moment when the news of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of Jesus, had not yet reached the faithful Old Testament believers, i.e. those who were baptized in the baptism of John, the last Old Testament prophet. When we read this passage well, it's not just about getting our mental furniture realigned. It's actually for the purpose of assurance and empowerment of believers. Friends, when we get this one right and apply it to our lives and to our church, this is a truth that will set the church of Jesus Christ on fire with zeal. Zeal for the Lord and for mission and for evangelism. I want to say this um, with as much grace and kindness as I possibly can. Because, first of all, teachers who misuse this passage and misread it, they do so with the best of intent. And I mean that sincerely. They are teachers and pastors and preachers who look at their congregation, at their flock, and they want more for them. They want more for them. It's the best of intent. I also want to deal carefully and uh, kindly and generously with this correction because I grew up in a segment of the church that taught this very error. Some of the men whom I most 
deeply respect, some of the men who had the greatest impact on my life and on my ministry, some of the men that I look at and they had the greatest passion and zeal for evangelism and for outreach and mission held to an error in reading this. They believed and taught that for Christians, you know, you, you are saved. And then as a separate subsequent work of grace, you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's not what's happening. We can't draw that line out of Acts 19. This was a particular moment where the gospel of the baptism of Jesus had not yet reached the Ephesians. Look, if you, if you believe that, right, I want to just challenge that not only from Scripture, but also just from church history. If you believe that there is a separate subsequent work of grace required for Christians to be then baptized in the Holy Spirit at a later moment, then in church history, what you're saying is every Christian believer from before 1901 in Azusa Street in Los Angeles was somehow deficient in the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit and the baptism of the Spirit. You really believe that? You really believe Martin Luther and John Calvin? Sure, they did pretty good work, but they were only saved. They weren't baptized in the Spirit. It's a tough one, right? Or what about Christians today? You know, you look at it and you say, look, you can be saved, but then you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's a separate subsequent work of grace. What about Billy Graham? Where did he have the power and the gifts and the baptism of the Spirit to do what he did? Look, um, there are well-meaning and powerfully effective gospel ministers in many other ways who hold to this separate subsequent work of grace, but they're wrong on this point. Ever since this point in Acts 19, to be saved means to be baptized. To be baptized in Jesus means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. There is no separate subsequent work of grace. If you're saved, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. All right, with that caveat out of the way and all of our theological heavy lifting, let's uh, look more closely at chapter 19, verses 1 to 7. So Paul arrives back in Ephesus as promised. Apollos has made his way to Corinth. Verse 2, Paul asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. Hear what's going on here? Verse 3, he asks them a question about their baptism. But you'll notice that this is a specific concern about this case and this moment. It's about the content and the nature of their belief, not reinforcing that Christians from this point forward can be somehow believing and not baptized in the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, Paul teaches them that there was more for them as faithful Old Testament believers. He's teaching them, he's, he's teaching them saying, look, you believe right up to the point of John the Baptist for the repentance, right? You, you, you have that baptism. 
But ever since then, Pentecost has happened. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. You need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, and so they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Friends, just like you were, if you're a Christian man or woman. When you repented, when God caused you to be born again, when you were regenerate, when you were baptized, you were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, baptized with the Holy Spirit. And just like you need to be, if you have never repented, been baptized, or been born again. So there were about 12 men in all. Verse 7. And we're going to apply this as we move forward, but just to be clear, just to understand the text and what's happening here. In Ephesus, Paul encounters these Old Testament believers who knew the gospel up to the point of John the Baptist's baptism. Now they are hearing about and being baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is, by definition, to be baptized in the Spirit. Okay, more quickly, verses 8 to 10. Um, Paul goes on to the synagogue, and he speaks boldly. He reasons with them. He persuades them about the kingdom of God. He gets turfed out of the synagogue, right? Like, that's enough of that. Get out of here. And then a teacher named Tyrannus offers him his lecture hall. Paul sets up shop there and teaches for about two years. This is, again, this repeated pattern that we see in the the book of Acts. The gospel is proclaimed. Some receive it with joy and are born again, born of the Holy Spirit, baptized in the Spirit, and others oppose it and reject it. It's a pattern that we still see in our world today. Verses 11 and 19. Verse 11, it says that God was doing, what does it say in your Bibles? Say it out. Extraordinary. Miracles by the hands of Paul. So that, verse 12, even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. All right. What we have in this last little bit here, verses 11 to 20, is a contrasting between extraordinary miracles and satanic magic, counterfeit. Verse 11, the Greek word that we translate to extraordinary, also means special or singular, remarkable. Verse 12. Gosh, this is going to get uncomfortable. (laughs) The next time you're watching television and a TV evangelist tells you that if you send him money, he's going to send you one of his handkerchiefs so that you can place the handkerchief on you and you will be healed, change the channel. It says right in the very word of God that these miracles that were wrought by God through Paul in Ephesus were extraordinary. They were special. They were singular. They were remarkable. Verses 13 to 17 makes this point even clearer with the sons of Sceva. These were religious guys who sought to capitalize 
on evil spirits and counterfeit miracles. The takeaway here is do not trifle with evil spirits. They really exist. And yet somehow in this text, and I know in some of your lives, under the providence of God, the presence of evil spirits has been redeemed and used to save you. Because as you have glimpsed the wickedness rising around you, you've gone looking for a savior. Well, that's what happens here in these verses. Verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Verses 18 to 19, these early believers in Ephesus, they confessed their practices of wickedness to one another. This counterfeit spirituality that had plagued them, they confessed it to one another. Verse 2, and they divulged themselves. They got rid of all of their magical books of evil practices. They turned away from them. Here's a, here's a pastoral point. You see, Christians are called to confess their sins to one another. Why is that? Well, I think partly because when you confess your sins to one another, that sin in your life loses its power of accusation. As Christian men and women, you should never be scandalized to hear that your brother or sister is battling with sin. You should be shocked to see how great is their Savior. That's the first reason why we confess our sins to one another. That's what they did in Ephesus. I think the second reason why we confess our sins to one another is so that the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ is put on display. You know, if I never confessed my sins to you, you might just think that I was a pretty good guy just by force of will and determination and inner virtue. Maybe parenting. But if I confess my sin to you, then I can say, look, I am a sinner made saint, but my flesh still wars against my spirit. I, I have only one hope, and that is that Jesus Christ is my Savior. That brings glory and honor to him and not to me. So in Ephesus, they confess their sins to one another, and Christians ought to do the same. Do you know what's remarkable? Christians are taught in Scripture to confess their sin to one another and to practice their virtue in private. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And yet in our age today, we do the exact opposite. We post all of our virtues on social media for everyone to see. And we cloak and we hide and we bury, never confessing our sins. Well, in Ephesus, they confessed their sins to one another and they burned their books. Ephesus was legendary in the ancient world because it had the largest library of books any place in the world. And they took them and they burned them and they cost a fortune. Look, when you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and you are saved, when you turn away from evil and wickedness and God saves you, there will be things that you can no longer do as a Christian man or woman. 
There will be patterns of behavior and ways that you've maybe made ends meet that you have to walk away from. That's what's happening in Ephesus. Okay, conclusion, verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is the point of the passage. Spirit-baptized believers, repenting of their sin, not falling into counterfeit evil spirituality, And the word of God increases and prevails mightily. It's all by this power of the spirit of Jesus Christ. And you know, here's another thing I want you to take away from this passage. This is the same spirit that is yours if you are a Christian man or woman. Romans chapter 8, verse 11, 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 11, it says this, it says that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you if you're a Christian. And friends, when you realize the truth of that, then you will begin to look at your life and you will witness the spirit of God radically transforming you and your world and the world. Because it's the ministry of that Holy Spirit into which you have been baptized in salvation that will give you confidence, assurance, power for transformation of self and renewal of mind, and power for evangelism. I want to say this to you with confidence. If you are a Christian then that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead already dwells in you. There are no more Apollos' or Ephesian 12 men anymore. There are no more Old Testament believers. You may not know it that you're filled with the Spirit, that you've been baptized in the Spirit. But it's true. You are. Maybe you're not living out of that truth. Maybe you're not living into that truth. But it is true of you nonetheless. Look, you look out over the world or your family or even your church and you see some Christians who are not living in the power of the Holy Spirit. You think, well, why is that? if they've already, by definition, been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Well, in biblical terms, it's because Galatians 5, they are not walking in step with the Spirit. They've already been baptized in the Spirit and filled with the Holy Spirit and, and being saved. They're just not walking by the Spirit. They're not keeping in step with the Spirit. They're not aware of it. Or in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul frames it up differently. He says, if you're a Christian man or woman, you ought to be regularly, ongoingly, infilled with the Holy Spirit. It's a truth that already exists of you, but you revisit it, you, re you review it, you remind yourself of it, you live out of it, that you are filled with and baptized in the Holy Spirit.
So I set before you uh, this morning the same question that Paul asked the church in Ephesus. Have you received the Holy Spirit? And the answer falls into only two categories. Either I have never repented and turned to Jesus. And therefore the answer is no, I've never received the Holy Spirit. Or, yes, R.D., I have repented. The Holy Spirit has caused me to be born again, and therefore I have received the Holy Spirit. Those are the only two options biblically. And friend, that's really, really good news to struggling Christians. It's better news than the non-biblical message that there's something more that you need. Let me show you why. If you're sitting here this morning and you say, you know, R.D., I just feel hopeless and powerless to save myself. Well, friend, the Spirit has already brought you from death to life, causing you to be saved. If you look at your life and you say, I just can't seem to catch a break. I don't seem to be able to give myself a second chance. The Spirit of God that is at work in you as a Christian has given you something better than a second chance. He's given you a new self. You're baptized in the Spirit. If you'd say, R.D., I'm just too timid to talk to people about Jesus, the Spirit that dwells in you empowers you for service with his gifts. If you would look at your life and say, here we are, January, what is today? 15th? 14th? It's January 14th, two weeks into the new year. I just feel hopeless and powerless to bring about lasting transformation that lasts for more than two weeks of the new year. Here's the good news. If you are saved, the Holy Spirit that's at work in you is sanctifying you and conforming you to the image of Christ. It's the work of the Spirit. You would say, R.D., I just, I imagine the future, and I can't imagine how I would ever be faithful enough to see myself through to heaven. Well, it's the Holy Spirit at work in you, who is the deposit, the guarantee that God will see you through to heaven on the last day. You say, R.D., I'm fearful and I'm worried. Well, it's the Spirit of God that assures you of your salvation in Christ and of your eternity with him. I want to close with this Trinitarian theology. Um, the Spirit's primary purpose is to glorify the Son. The Son's primary purpose is to bring people to and to glorify the Father. The Father and the Son... Send the Holy Spirit. That's Trinitarian theology. And so it means that any time in your life or in your world that you see Jesus being made much of, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul says to the Corinthian church, he says, no one can say that Jesus is Lord apart from the work of the Spirit. So if you're a Christian man or woman today, then this is true of you. This same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. 
And if you're not a Christian, if you would say, I don't know, I don't think I've repented, I don't think I've been born again, then if you feel drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul would say, well, nobody can say that Jesus Christ is Lord apart from the work of the Spirit. So if you feel drawn to Jesus as Lord, that's evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in you. Convicting of your sin, granting you faith to trust in Jesus so that you would be born again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, even and especially at times when it requires heavy lifting and hard work. We thank you for honoring your word, sending your Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. I pray, God, that this message from Acts chapter 19, rightly understood, would bring hope and assurance and confidence that not one Christian would leave this place feeling like a deficient, lacking Christian, but knowing that they have been filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered with the joy of living into that and out of that. And for those who have not yet repented, that they would know this power of the Holy Spirit that they're not just feeling bad or guilty or emotionally bad about things, but that that's the work of the Spirit convicting them so that they might turn to Jesus and be saved. We commit all this to you in his name.